Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to Acts chapter 17. And we'll be looking in verses uh, 16 through 21 as the Apostle Paul is now making his way to the city of Athens. And he has arrived there and he is uh, going to begin his ministry in this very important city. So Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16, and I'll read down through verse 21. This is kind of the lead up, the build up to this uh, great sermon that he's going to preach on the uh, Areopagus. So we'll, uh, we'll set it up, Lord willing, this week, and then we'll look at the sermon itself in more detail uh, next Lord's Day, Lord willing. So Acts chapter 17, I'll begin reading in verse 16. And since I'm reading the inspired Word of God, please give careful and reverent attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be proclaiming a strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, Paul is in the middle of his second missionary journey. In Troas, he heard the Macedonian call, so he took a ship over to Philippi where he ministered. And of course, you remember, they were, they were beaten with rods there and thrown into prison. They eventually went over to Thessalonica where they were run out of town after preaching the Gospel. And then they went down to Berea, where again they preached, but again they had to leave town for the threat of abuse to the believers there. So now they end up in Athens. Uh, Basically, a couple of the Berean brethren become Paul's escort, and they take him to Athens. And then he gives them instruction in verse 15 to uh, to go back and tell Silas and Timothy who stayed in Berea to come to him as soon as they could. He left them behind, <clears throat> excuse me, so they could continue to teach and exhort and establish the church there in Berea. So now they've taken Paul to Athens. They go back home to Berea. Paul is there by himself. He's in the city of Athens by himself. Silas and Timothy are there in Berea continuing to minister the Word of God until the church can be at least established in the basics as they can leave and join Paul. So that's where he's at. It's about a 250-mile journey to Athens from Berea. He may have taken the ship. He may have walked it. We aren't sure. It's not really all that clear in the text. But we do know that he's in Athens alone. And he probably has time to walk through the city because Athens was renowned for many things, as we'll see momentarily. And he was walking through the city just seeing all the attractions, all the temples, all the monuments, all the idols, everything that Athens had to offer. So we pick it up in verse 16. Paul was waiting for them at Athens. The them refers to Silas and Timothy who were left behind in Berea. And his spirit was provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Now let me give you a little background on Athens just to kind of let you know what Paul is experiencing. Athens was one of the most important cities of world history. 
You could say Jerusalem is the most important city of world history. Athens, from a worldly perspective, is right there at the top of the list. From a worldly perspective, it ranks uh, at the top because of Greece's golden age, which was from the 5th to the 4th centuries B.C. So four to five hundred years before Paul arrived, Greece and Athens in particular was experiencing uh, a renaissance, just an incredible explosion of, of which is called the golden age of Athens. In the first century, by the time the Apostle Paul shows up, Athens no longer had all the glory of her celebrated past, but she was still a world leader in many ways. But Greece was living off the capital of their past in in many ways. Her ancient achievements, the status that she held as one of the leading cities of the world. Now, this is true on several different perspectives. Culturally, Athens was proud of her reputation as a center of art and literature and philosophy, learning, medicine, oratorical skill. You could say that Athens was still the capital, the cultural capital of the world because of all of her history and all the things still going on in the city when Paul arrived. Rome had conquered Athens in 146 B.C., but due to her history and cultural and intellectual past, Rome allowed Athens to remain a free city, able to carry on her institutions and, and continue to glory in her past. So culturally, Athens was kind of the center, the capital of the world. Intellectually, Athens was, was uh, also viewed as kind of the, the, the capital of the world intellectually. Uh, in her previous history, the intellectual giants, from the world's perspective, were in Athens in that 4th to 5th century B.C. Men like Socrates, men like Plato and Aristotle, all of these guys were in Athens. And they taught in Athens. And, and the influence is still in the world today of many of these guys. Athens was known as the intellectual center of the world. There were three great universities around in Paul's day. One of them was in Tarsus. That's where Paul grew up. So he got it, uh, some of his education from the great university in Tarsus. Then you have one in Alexandria. And then you have one in Athens. And that's where Paul is right now. These were the three great leading intellectual centers of the ancient world. Paul, again, being born in Tarsus, would be very familiar with the other schools, never having visited there. But he would have excelled himself as a scholar. We know Paul had a massive intellect by the grace of God. He would have been schooled in the Greek philosophies. And this is very evident because he quotes them. And he's going to quote them later on in the sermon in Acts chapter 17. So he's very educated very much understood the culture of the Greeks because of his own education in Tarsus and then later in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, you remember. But he was a very educated man, knew this stuff frontwards and backwards. So intellectually, Athens was still an incredibly important city. Politically, Athens was also an amazing city because it was in Athens that democracy was born. It was in Athens that the cause of human liberty began to grow and thrive. So they began to elect their officials who would represent them. So, so early democracy began to grow and really found its beginning in Athens. So Athens was an incredible city from a worldly perspective in terms of culture and intellect and, and even politically. And yet... As Paul is walking through the city in verse 16, his eye was catching primarily all the, the city being full of idols. It was a very religious city. There were gods everywhere. Everywhere you looked. Every street you went down. There would be gods everywhere. Statues everywhere throughout Athens. The actual word that's found here in verse uh, 16, city 
full of idols is a word you find no place else in the New Testament, no place else in any Greek literature found anywhere. I don't know if Luke made up this word. If he did, he made it up very wisely because the word actually implies that the city was under the idols. And this is the idea that the city was was basically immersed in idolatry. It was buried under idolatry. It was swamped by the idols. It was smothered by them. The city was under the idols. That's the actual word that Luke uses. This has a preposition as a prefix, kata, which can mean down or under. But it can also have an intensive idea, meaning that when you walk through the city of Athens, it's like you're walking through a forest of idolatry everywhere you look. It's like being in the middle of the ocean on a ship. Water, water everywhere. And when you're in Athens, it's just like idols, idols everywhere. It was a city immersed, drowning in idolatry. Luke describes this city perfectly. And other pagans actually agreed. Uh, Xenophon, one of the uh, Greeks, referred to Athens as one great altar, one great sacrifice. In other words, you sum up the city, it's just like one big huge altar and sacrifice to the pagan gods. It was also said that there were more gods in Athens than in all the rest of Greece put together. And in Athens, it was easier to meet a god than a person. And there's actually some truth to that because by estimates, there were about 10,000 people living in Athens. It was a much smaller city by the first century. 10,000 people living there, but 30,000 statues of gods. So you'd run into a god far more often than you'd run into a human. This is awfully, certainly tragic. Calvin uh, nailed it when he said that the heart of man is a perpetual factory of idols. And that's what we see apart from God's grace. Men just invent idols. Left and right, worshiping one idol after another. Obviously, this catered to the superstitions of the common population. These superstitions of all the gods, the gods of the Olympus. Uh, kept them in the spiritual darkness and ruled their hearts with fear. All the people were immersed into this. Such religious devotion to the gods, take your pick on which one you want to worship, was considered a civil virtue and loyalty to the state. So it was just entrenched in the whole system of life there at Athens. And there were incredible works of art. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen any of these. I mean, they still have some of these statues from the 4th and 5th century B.C. and up to Paul's day. And these are magnificent expressions of man's skillfulness in carving out of marble or wood or making things out of gold or silver. They're incredible works of art, but sadly, it's all devoted to the worship of idols. Idolatry was so ubiquitous throughout the city that uh, there were far more works of towards making uh, arts, works of art, uh, images, pagan deities than there would be. Like in America, we say there's a church on every corner, but that doesn't even begin to describe uh, the idolatry of Athens. So all the Greek pantheon was worshipped, all the gods of Olympus, Apollo, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, Diana, you name it. Gods made out of marble, gods made out of brass, gods made out of gold and silver and ivory, elegantly fashioned by the finest Greek sculptures all throughout the city. The crown jewel of their idolatry was found on top of the Acropolis. And the Acropolis was, if I can get my, the Acropolis was the main hill in this kind of the center area of the city of Athens. And on top of it were some of their most important temples. 
this is the Acropolis, again, the crown jewel of their idolatry that sat on top of the ancient citadel, on top of a tall hill, visible for miles all around. And the brightest jewel in this crown was the temple to the goddess Athena. This is the one that most people are familiar with when you think of the ruins of Athens. It's the big building on the right. This is the, uh, uh, the, the Parthenon. This is dedicated to, again, the goddess Athena, temple to the virgin goddess. That's what Parthenon probably means. And inside this building was a huge statue made out of gold and ivory to a statue of Athena. Again, the, the Athena was the goddess of wisdom, the goddess of handicraft, the goddess of warfare. And she was constructed in the 5th century B.C. She was almost 40 feet tall with a spear and a helmet. And again, she's made out of gold and ivory. They used ivory for all of her skin and face and, that's, and gold for all the rest of it. Outside in the courtyard, which you can see in this particular picture, was another statue of Athena, about 30 feet tall. But the Parthenon was kind of the, the, the greatest, brightest gem and the crown jewel of their idolatry. This building itself, the Parthenon, was about 230 feet long, 100 feet wide. The columns themselves were about 34 feet high. There's 46 columns on the outside, 23 on the inner columns. A magnificent building by any standard of architecture. And the city of Athens took its name from the goddess Athena. And she became basically the patron goddess for the city. These temples, there are other temples on the Acropolis, were built in celebration of the Greek victory over the Persian invaders. And they were dedicated to their gods, their pagan gods. So that the entire culture of Athens was immersed and saturated with idolatry. And the sad truth of all of this, of course, is that idolatry is nothing but a lie. These are not gods at all. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, Paul says that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. In other words, all of this idolatry is just an outward show of demonism, the worship of demons that was throughout the culture and throughout the city. So Paul is walking through this city full of idols, and in verse 16, we observe that his spirit was being provoked within him. So Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy to arrive. He's walking through the city, seeing all these masterpieces of art and architecture and gods, and and yet his heart on the inside is being stirred. He's being provoked to anger. He sees all the beauty and all the spectacular splendor of the city, but it's the idolatry that most impresses him. So he took offense. That they were squandering their God-given abilities and talents to create objects of worship which were basically an affront to the glory of God. He was agitated. He was irritated. He was made angry and sick on the inside because God's glory was being substituted by all these different pagan objects, these idols. Just to get caught up on my pictures. There's another picture of the Acropolis. There's a Parthenon in ruins, but it's been partly rebuilt. Inside, there's a, you can see a closer up look of of the Parthenon. There's a statue, something similar to this statue of Athena would have been in the center. And this is the stuff that people worship. So he is there, his spirit is being provoked. It's interesting, this word for provoked in verse 16 is the word, the Greek word that's used in the Septuagint of the Old Testament. Remember what the Septuagint is. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament made about 200 B.C. when the Jews were, were being so Hellenized they were unable to read Hebrew 
because they were immersed in Greek culture and the Greek language, so they had their Old Testament scriptures translated into Greek. So in that version of their Old Testament, the Septuagint, this same word provoked was used of God, interesting, in many occasions when He's provoked by the idolatry of Israel. In fact, when Israel made the golden calf at the base of Mount Sinai, this is the word that's used to describe God's reaction to their idolatry. The, 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 the Lord God was provoked by their sin. Same word. And it makes sense. Because the Apostle Paul being filled with the Spirit of God should respond the same way that God does when His character is being confronted and affronted by the idolatry of the people. God is a jealous God. He will not share His glory with another. That God has the right to our exclusive allegiance and that God is offended whenever we give that which belongs to Him alone to creatures or the work of our hands and make an idol out of it. So it makes sense that Paul would share the divine reaction to idolatry by being provoked within the Spirit. You know, I think there's something there for all of us that we need to pray that God would so increase our love for Him that we would share in that jealousy for His name as we live in a world full of idols today as well. To be more sensitive to God's glory. For all of Athens' grand achievements in education and arts and amazing architecture, literature, music, she was morally decadent and spiritually dead. She was using all that God-given talent that's a part of the image of God, distorted by sin, but, but men can produce incredible things of beauty. I mean, but that's a reflection of God's image within us, that creativity, that, that delighting in beauty. There, there's, that's a part of God's image, but it's been distorted by our sin. So now we use those God-given gifts and we use it to make an idol, to make a lie, to worship that rather than worshiping God. So we steal God's glory from Him and we give it to demons masquerading as gods. So what's driving Paul and his ministry here? What's driving him is the glory of God. He is seeing all of the idolatry of Athens. <clears throat> and he's now going to be stimulated and moved to preach the gospel. And I think there's something here also because we see in verse 17 he starts going to the synagogues. He starts going to the marketplace to preach the gospel. But what's driving him is his spirit is being provoked by the idols. He has such a passion for God's glory that to see all of these idols stealing away God's rightful glory moves him to missions. It moves him to evangelism. John Stott, in his commentary, made uh, some very astute observations. He says, what is it that should motivate us in missions today? Well, one thing is a great commission. We're commanded to do missions. That ought to motivate us. Our love for people, our love for lost sinners, that should motivate us. But according to John Stott, and I think what's reflected in this passage, the highest incentive for missions is a zeal and a jealousy for the glory of God. That we live around people who are not living to God's glory. We're living around people who are, who are giving the glory that belongs to God to man-made objects. And in doing that, they are robbing God of His glory. And we should be jealous that God receives the glory that He is worthy of. And that is why I want to share the Gospel so that their hearts might repent, that they might give glory to God because God alone is worthy of that glory. And that's what highly motivated the Apostle Paul in doing 
His ministry, I think, in Athens. You see, Christ is exalted. And one day every knee will bow before Him. Every tongue will confess before Him. And we should have a desire to see more of that taking place now. So that whenever Christ is denied His rightful place in people's lives, we should feel inwardly wounded and jealous for the glory of His name. That moved Paul. I don't know how much that moves me, but it should move me more. So in light of that, in verse 17, Paul now begins to go to the synagogue and the marketplace. Verse 17, he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. So having seen the city full of idols, he cannot be quiet any longer. But he doesn't go on a tirade. He doesn't go through the city smashing up all the idols like the peasant revolt in the days of Martin Luther. He went to the synagogues. He went to the marketplace and began to reason. He began to reason with them. This word for reasoning in verse 17 is found many times in the book of Acts as Paul's method of communicating the gospel. When you reason, you give instruction. You teach, but it also implies discussion, argumentation, giving evidence for your position from the Scripture. And he engaged in that in the synagogue and also out among the, uh, the marketplace with people that would show up every day. The marketplace or the forum, or we would call it the agora, that's the marketplace, <clears throat> was really kind of the... Um, the, the center of public life in Athens as it was in most Greek cities. The ancient Agora marketplace of Athens was a large public square northwest of the Acropolis. It held the heart of, uh, again, the administrative buildings, the temples were there, altars were there, stoas were there, fountain houses were there. Commercial transactions took place in the Agora Theater took place there. Musical events took there. Athletic contests took place there. I mean, it was just kind of the hub. That's where you went. All the major roads of the city ended up in the Agora. It was a place, that's where all the action was, uh, by and large. So that's where Paul would go. He would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He would teach the Word of God to them and the the God-fearing Greeks. And then throughout the rest of the week, he goes to the marketplace and he just shares the gospel. Now, the marketplace had places where you could give public speeches to people. So this was understandable and it was acceptable. Philosophers would stand up. They would debate one another. So it was really a public gathering place where you could stand up and, and address the people. And this is probably what Paul did as well as speaking one-on-one to people uh, in the marketplace. The reactions of this we find in verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers began to listen to Paul in the Agora, in the marketplace, and they began to react to him. Let me briefly remind you who the Epicureans and the Stoics are. These are two philosophical groups that had a lot of influence in Athens. The Epicureans basically followed Aristotle's ideas And they believed that the world was a result of random motion of atoms to whatever degree they could comprehend tiny little things. They were basically materialists. There was no afterlife when you died. Life is just a random, orderless, chaotic collision of atoms and humans must use their free will to shape their world the best they can in a way that pleases them. Uh, For the Epicureans, the chief end of life was basically pleasure, so they were hedonists to a certain degree. But the best pleasure in their mind was a life of peace and tranquility, free from pain, free from the disrupting passions and fear, especially the fear of death. They wanted to overcome that. They wanted an inner peace that would numb them out to life's pain and difficulties. So happiness, according to the Epicureans, 
was a serene detachment from your family, from government, from public interests. You just kind of bury your heads in the sand of indifference. Now they believed in gods, but they were kind of deists. The gods that they believed in basically didn't really care anything about what happened on earth. They didn't care about humans. They didn't care about what's going on in your life. But they were perfect in their own serene detachment from heaven. They had nothing to do with humans. So there's no fear of them intervening in your life. There's no fear of life after death. This life is all there is. You only go around once. So if it feels good, do it. Would you describe our age today as Epicurean? In a lot of ways, it certainly is, isn't it? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's kind of the Epicurean motto. The Stoics followed Plato's ideas. They got their name Stoics from the Stoas, these little uh, colonnade, these little areas where their founder Zeno would actually teach. So they took the name of the Stoa, the place, the meeting place, and they took that name to describe their philosophical view. Today it might be like Starbucks where people might meet. Uh, start a new philosophical movement and call it Starbucks or something. Probably be just as pagan as what they're doing. But they basically believed that uh, God was in a world soul. They were kind of pantheists. That God was equated with, with this world soul called the Logos. And they believed in a spiritual realm that transcended the material. So that's Stoicism. And they believed that, uh, that the Logos was a cosmic, supernatural, non-personal mind that caused the universe to operate according to predictable laws. So we could, we could kind of get in touch with the Logos through meditation, through logic, getting rid of distracting passions. And the death was basically when your mind or your spirit would reunite with the cosmic logos. Some, lots of weird ideas here. Basically, they're fatalists. And they also believe that uh, we need to live our life kind of detached from what's going on around us. The better you are, the more apathy you will have. The more detached you will be. You'll be resigned to your lot in life. If bad things happen, you just grin and bear it. Very isolated, very kind of a remote type thinking, but many people followed the Stoics. These two philosophies debated each other. And it's interesting that in contrast to their view, Paul is going to speak of the caring activity of a personal Creator God. A God whom we should seek, not the false gods. We should seek after the true God because the day of judgment is coming and the judgment will be accomplished by a resurrected man. Therefore, sinners must repent. Totally different message than what these two philosophies taught. Paul would uh, be an amazing communicator. Uh, he could go into the synagogues and he could minister to Jews and God-fearing Greeks. He could go into the marketplace. He could go into the, the halls of the great universities of the day, he could go into a shopping mall and share the gospel. He could communicate with all kinds of people in all different types of settings. He was gifted to do that. He was a man of great abilities by the grace of God. So how did these two ep groups, these Epicureans and Stoic philosophers, respond to Paul's preaching? Well, we're told in verse 18, some of them are saying, that he's an idle babbler. And these were the mockers. Uh, the word idle babbler originally referred to a seed picker, and it was used for the little birds, little scavenger birds that would hop around on the, on the ground looking for seeds. Now in my backyard I have a bird feeder, and the sparrows will land on that bird feeder and use their beaks as a shovel. And they just shovel out the seed to the left and the right, and it's all on my patio. So then all the other birds become seed pickers. 
they're down there on the patio and they're just hopping around, looking around, picking a seed there and going to hop and getting a seed there. And that was the meaning, the original meaning of this word for idle babbler. That word then began to morph and develop as time grew on to refer to beggars who would go around the streets and pick up scraps of food in the marketplace. You know, they would be the beggars, just getting a little bit of food over here, a little bit of food over there. And so I began to refer to these uh, uh, worthless characters, just beggars. And then it morphed into the idea of teachers who just borrowed a little bit from here and a little bit from there, and they squished it all together, and they began to teach this stuff. And that's the way they're kind of using it for the Apostle Paul. So-called teachers who go around picking up scraps of learning and they spout them forth in a big garbage can omelet of assorted ideas borrowed from other people. They're kind of like a dumpster diving amateur lecturer trying to be something that he's not. So this is an, this is an insult. They are mocking Paul. The idea was associated with with these teachers that didn't have an original thought in their head. They stole all this stuff from other people. Kind of a mental meat grinder that comes out all this intellectual sausage. This is is kind of the idea they're picturing of Paul. An itinerant peddler of secondhand scraps. And some some of the commentators will translate this expression as an ignorant plagiarist academic charlatans, mental parrots, intellectual magpies. I like that one the most. So they didn't have a high view of Paul. So they're calling him an idle babbler, an insult, mocking him. Others, in verse 18, are saying that he's a proclaimer of strange deities. So now these are accusers. The first group are mockers. These are accusers. And they're accusing him of proclaiming strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection in verse 18. Now, why are they calling that deities in the plural? Well, again, uh, he was probably teaching on the Trinity. So they might have misunderstood thinking there were many gods in the Trinity when there's only one God. Or they could have misunderstood Paul when he talked about Jesus and the resurrection. That word resurrection, they could have associated with the goddess of restoration or life or something like that. So they could have, who knows what they were thinking. But this is a serious accusation in verse 18 that he's a proclaimer of strange deities because everyone knew their history and Socrates back in the 5th century was accused of a similar crime of impiety, proclaiming strange deities and corrupting the youth. And he was, he was given the death sentence and he had to drink hemlock. And he, was, uh, he died from that in the year 399 B.C. So, to be accused of being a proclaimer of strange deities was potentially serious. It was life-threatening. So what they do in verse 19, they take hold of Paul. They brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is, what you're proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. So they take the Apostle Paul, and some of these people may now be curious. They, They are thinking, well, okay, we want to know better what you're saying. So you have a variety of different responses. You have the mockers, you have the accusers, then you have some who are curious. So what do they do? They take Paul to what's in verse 19 is referred to as the Areopagus. The Areopagus literally means the hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war. Yours may have Mars Hill. Mars is the Roman name for the Greek god Ares. So it's the hill of Mars. Same god in view, just different word for the same god. And this hill was about 100 yards northwest of the Acropolis. So you can kind of see it up here on the right in the picture. And uh, traditionally there was a council that met on top. And this council in centuries past had a lot of power. They were like judges. It would be kind of like the Supreme Court 
would meet up here and they would render on criminal charges and things like that. Um, in Paul's day, there was a debate as to whether they actually continued to meet up there or they moved down into the, the forum in one of these buildings and yet they still referred to their meeting place as the Areopagus. So, whichever doesn't really make that big of a difference. But the Areopagus in Paul's day still had a certain level of judicial authority, mainly in the areas of religion, morals, and education. So if a teacher comes into town and starts teaching something different than the status or what's politically correct, then you get marched before the the people at the Areopagus and they examine you and you have to explain to them and then they kind of pass a judgment on on your teaching. The word for take in verse 19 is actually a word that in some places in Acts refers to being arrested or seized by force by soldiers. So it could be that once these two groups of philosophers heard him, they kind of arrested him and marched him in front of these, these leaders, these aristocrats who would evaluate what he was going to teach. So Paul is possibly taken into custody, uh, brought before the Areopagus to be examined to determine if he's allowed to continue to, to, to preach. In verse 21, we are kind of uh, given an insight. At the end of verse 20, they actually say, we want to know what these things mean. And then uh, Luke throws in this explanation in verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So there is a sense in which they were intoxicated by the novelty of the message. They were intoxicated by what's new. They're always interested in what's new. They get tired of the old stuff. I want to hear what's new. Tell me what's new. And they were, they were really infatuated by this idea of novelty. They're like children they're always drawn to something new you know they play with the toy and then they lose interest and then they want to go to something new and they're like children mentally spiritually so that they're always drawn to novel ideas like bees to nectar and this obviously can be very dangerous by the way that's the value of creeds and confessions it establishes a a, a foundation for biblical truth so that people are not swayed by the new things and ideas that are creeping around. Sadly, I've known people who've come into this church this way. They came maybe out of an Arminian background, but then they heard something new. They heard the doctrines of grace. And they were, they were enamored by them, and they embraced the doctrines of grace and became reformed in their theology. And that lasted for a little while, and then they started hearing some new other stuff. And they got drawn to that. And so they, they came in to reform theology, riding the wagon of the novelty, and then they just moved out of reform theology on the same wagon. And some of them, sadly, have even less left the faith riding the same wagon of this intoxication with the new and the novel. So that's the spirit of the Athenians. Some of them mocked. They rejected it outright. Some of them accused Paul and others were interested. They were curious. And that really was kind of a prevailing idea, mental uh, mindset for many of them in the city of Athens. So let me wrap up. We're just kind of getting ready to his sermon as he's being brought before uh, the, uh, the leaders on the Areopagus or Mars Hill. And he's about to preach an incredible sermon. But there are several things so far that I think we should keep in mind. The first thing is that I think we can appreciate God's common grace in the world around us without being seduced by the worldliness of it. Man, though fallen, it still reflects God's image. And though it is deeply tarnished and distorted by sin, we all benefit and we, are, we all are blessed by the inventions and the abilities of even unbelievers to create things that are a blessing to our life. Whether it's a, a cell phone or, or something like that. Just uh, construction, things, with our homes, 
so we can appreciate God's common grace giving man, making man in His image, and some of that image is still intact. Again, it's been distorted by our sin. But man's creativity, his ability to create art and beautiful things can still be there. And we can appreciate that at the same time being somewhat recoiled by the idolatry that so much of this is rooted in. I can appreciate the arts for what they are, seeing the hidden glory of God and its beauty. But at the same time, I can be saddened and I can be grieved by the, uh, the, the idolatry and the sin that motivates them to do whatever they're doing. And this idolatry robs God of His glory that He deserves. And again, as I've indicated already, when we're talking about missions, we should keep in mind that one of the greatest motivations for missions is to reclaim the glory of God in the hearts of men. It's not just because God commands us to be involved in the Great Commission. That's that's part of our motivation to be obedient. It's not because we love our neighbor as ourselves and we want sinners to be saved and not go to hell. That's That's a valid motivation. But the highest motivation is to want to see the glory of God again reasserted in in that heart, that idolatrous heart. That's why Piper, John Piper, in one of his books, Let the Nations Be Glad. If you're interested in missions, you ought to read this book. But he says that missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. He says missions only exist because worship does not. Missions is temporary. It's for this life, this age. But worship is forever. Thus, worship that tunes our hearts to the glory of God is the ultimate motivation and goal of missions. Because the goal of missions is the gladness of the people in the greatness of God. And when we see God's glory being trashed, and when we see God's glory being given to, to, the, to the works of our hands, to idols, when we see God's glory being stolen away from Him and given to men, it should grieve us to a certain degree. And I, I'm, I'm not, I, don't, I don't experience that nearly to what I think I should. But I think that is one of the things that was motivating the Apostle Paul to see the glory of God reclaimed in these idolatrous hearts. We are surrounded by our world that is as much entrenched and immersed in idolatry as was ancient Athens. Not necessarily that you see a a statue of a god everywhere, but you see God's in our hearts. You find there's not any tangible thing that we can't make more important than our relationship with Jesus Christ. So that we still, as Calvin says, men are still, their hearts are a factory of making idols, cranking them out one after one. And what I pray is that God would give us more of that sensitivity to when God's glory is being trashed that God would help us to compel us in missions, wanting to see other people worship God because He is worthy of that worship. So I think we have to fight our own apathy. We have to fight our own indifference because we're, we're like a fish in the water. You know, does a fish know he's wet? Probably not because he's so, that's all he knows. He's surrounded with them. We live in a world that is surrounded and immersed in, the, in idolatry and we can just become kind of numb to it I can understand that. I feel that numbness. But there, we need more of a sensitivity to the glory of God, I think. And have a heart like Paul did to speak up because God's glory was being uh, attacked by the idolatry. And again, I think just to, to, to say secondly, that when it comes to sharing the Gospel in our day and age, Really, we're not much different than Athens is uh, because of the growing paganism within our own country. 
And I think we need to learn how to better share the gospel with pagans, with idolaters. And Paul has much to teach us about this. Our culture, again, is increasingly pagan. And the sermon that we will look at, Lord willing, next Sunday is really a masterpiece of communication, according to F.F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar. This is an amazing sermon, and I can't wait to dive into it with you to see how does Paul bring the Gospel to those who are not Jews, who are not religious in in terms of of, uh, the Old Testament Judaism. How do you bring the Gospel to people? Well, he's going to teach us how to do that. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to that, Lord willing. So hopefully that sets us up to where uh, Paul is going to uh, stand up in front of these very educated, elite men. And he's going to proclaim the gospel with great sensitivity and yet with great power and boldness. And so uh, again, what we trust that the Lord will, will uh, show us Uh, better how to share the gospel in our own day and age as we witness how the Apostle Paul will do it. So with that in mind, let's, uh, let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Father God, we do want to uh, thank You for Your mercy. We want to thank You, Lord, for all the, the blessings that You've given to us and the fact that we can even look around in this fallen world and we can see the glory of God. We can see it in the heavens that are impacted by the curse. We can see Your glory in the mountains and the oceans. We can see it all around us. We can even see Your glory, the image of God that is still embedded within the hearts of mankind, though twisted and deformed by sin. And yet we can, we can still benefit and acknowledge and thank You for Your grace, Your common grace that's still working in sinners. But Lord, we see also how Your glory is spat upon. We see, Lord, how Your honor is despised. We see the wicked, evil hearts of men that have turned away from the one and only true God to worship demons masquerading as idols. The work of men's hands that we worship ourselves, that we idolize our own will, our own desires. We have idols of the heart, all even within our hearts, Lord. And yet we desire that by Your Spirit, You will give us a greater sensitive sensitivity to wanting to see the, the glory of God reclaimed in the hearts of sinners. So Lord, use us to that end. Not only give us the knowledge and the ability to know better how to share the Gospel, but Lord, we pray that You would use us to see sinners coming into the Kingdom of Jesus Christ. So Lord, thank You for the Apostle Paul. Thank You for the gifts that You gave him. Thank You for his boldness, his passion to share Christ with those around him. Share that with us too, Lord. Give us more of that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.